Hello, everyone. Welcome to Comic Sans, the podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. I'm Yen, a comic book reader, writer, sometimes reviewer, consumer. And I'm Nat. And I have my two dogs in the studio with me right now. Can you see them, Yen? I can see them. And I want to point out, and I hope we don't edit out, there was a long pause <laughs> because Nat seemed to forget we were recording and just went to pet his dogs. So now we're, we're, we're three bad boys into this, right? What's been the experience so far? And have you noticed a common theme throughout all three? There is a correct answer to that question. Comics. The common theme is comics. Incorrect. That's not the common theme. Incorrect. I'm locking in my answer. Okay. Well, I already told you it's not, and I'm glad you still locked it in. So no, but what's the experience? What's the experience? It's been good. Uh, so we started with Saga, moved to Spider-Man, moved to Sandman. I know the common theme is they all start with S. You're correct. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, my man. Congratulations. You just won Thank a third you. dog. Look outside. Come on, look outside. Look outside. There's a third dog. Wow. <laughs> and inside that dog is another dog. And I'm not talking pregnancy. I'm talking skin suits. So the common theme is that everything started with S so far. Is that, yep. am, I, am I right? And that's correct. And, and now, now, now we are moving... To the next to letter the next. of the alphabet. You are absolutely correct. You beat Amazing. me to it once again. You're killing it. Here's a fifth dog. <laughs> S-S-S-T. Because today, we are reading, and I hold in my hand... I'm scared to say it. I don't know what pronunciation I should say. You know what? I'm going to blend the two together. Okay. Tinton. Thank you. Nat is holding a copy of Tintin or Tonton, but we are just going to call it Tintin today. Can we please do Tinton? We will not be doing Tinton. Nat is holding that copy courtesy of, you know, you may not know it, folks, but the most work in this podcast involves getting these copies to Nat from my house. So we'd like to thank the three people because it took three people to get it to Nat. Actually, more than three. Who else? Well, because in the first trip that I made to your house, oh, you're my right. partner's mom was waiting in the car for like an hour, plus my two dogs, plus my partner. Wait, your mother-in-law was in the car? Yeah, yeah, because she was sending well, us she home. she should have come out and helped. It would have made the searching faster. <laughs> yeah, so specifically for these Tintins, we'd like to acknowledge the labor, the uh, means of production, <laughs> as it were. My sister, my mother, and then Nat's partner. The true heroes of this podcast. Truly. And what's also true about that is that we are also the true villains of this podcast. Because <laughs> everybody else was involved. <laughs> and we're just, we're just capitalizing off it. But yes. So thanks to those three people. That was thank a really you. poor way to say thank you. <laughs> Today we're talking about Tintin. And the theme is the elegance of simplicity. You ready for this, Nat? I am. I'm excited. I mean... Obviously, I know who Tintin is, but I don't think I've ever read a Tintin comic. So this is exciting for me. So every time I start the notes for this show, I have a little difficulty thinking about where to start. We usually are starting at the first issue of these massive stories, or I'm just giving you the context to get you there. And with my notes, I try to start at the chronological beginning. The problem is, is that with Tintin, Tintin is the start of everything for me. Tintin is the first comic I ever read. All my obsessions and fascinations with the medium start in the pages you have right now, Nat. Literally those pages, because for our listeners, right, Nat is holding my childhood editions of Tintin, 
well worn because I would read it and reread and reread and reread. So this is your origin story. This is my origin story. But why Tintin? Yeah, why why did Tintin hook me so much? You know, I read Calvin and Hobbes, Asterix and Obelisk, Archie, Bino and Dandy. So why Tintin? What do you know about Tintin, Nat? Honestly, not much. I have guesses, but I'm very sure those guesses are wrong. So to protect my reputation, I'm not going to say anything. No, let's ruin your reputation. Give me those guesses. Give me those guesses. I don't know. It's some sort of explorer. I know he has a dog okay. that I do not know the name of. And that's pretty much it. That's the extent of my knowledge. Okay. Well, yeah. In short, Tintin is a teenage journalist who travels the world with his trusty dog, Snowy. So you got that right. And they just have little adventures. There's 24 albums. So Tintin doesn't have issues. It wasn't coming out monthly. It was just coming out when Hergé was finishing them. I thought you meant, like, I thought you were saying Tintin doesn't have issues, like problems. Well, honestly, <laughs> Tintin doesn't really. Tintin's kind of a great dude. Easy going. He's just a stand-up fella. Yeah. He was created in 1929 as an offshoot of Georges Remy's earlier creation, Totor. Remy, that name may sound new to you, because he would later take the pen name Hergé. Mm. Totor was also a Boy Scout, like Hergé. And Totor was Hergé stretching his muscles, trying things out in a monthly format with adventures and little shenanigans and things like that. And in 1929, when Totor's story ended, Hergé turned to Tintin, a character who was something of a spiritual brother to Totor. Tintin is a refined version, a simplified version of Totor. He's younger, it's less about where he's from, and almost purely about where he's going. And also... Tintin, unlike Totor, has a reason to travel. Tintin's a journalist. Though the only time we actually ever see him write or talk about being a journalist is in the first ever story, Tintin in the Land of Soviets. That's why he has no issues. He's quiet quitted. Well, he's also... Hergé never actually says exactly how old Tintin is, but we know he's 16 to 18. So he's a child. <laughs> so there's, okay, so there's, there are concerns of a child labor here. I guess, maybe. There's bigger concerns coming up. Don't worry about it. <laughs> There's something really ageless about Tintin. Because he's like, he's a teenager, right? But he's roaming the world without any supervision. We never hear about Tintin's parents or his family. He's just barreling forward into the great unknown. And part of what makes him so iconic is his design. There's that little like pointy nose, the blue sweater, brown pants, and importantly, that swish of the hair, mm. which I think is probably more iconic than Superman's swirl because Tintin's silhouette that swish makes him so distinct. Mm. You can see a shadow of Tintin and you're like, oh, that's Tintin. That simplicity also makes him easier to illustrate. Hergé just has to follow these pretty vague lines and he's got the character. And then there's the cast of characters that follow Tintin. There's Captain Haddock, the cranky, drunken, retired sea captain who Tintin befriends over the years. Captain Haddock is a sailor and he has all sorts of colorful phrases because he couldn't swear. So Hergé made up all these kinds of weird analogs for swearing. And so when you read it later, please read those out loud. Okay, noted. And back onto this thing about, you know, the optimism of Tintin and the simplicity of him. But Captain Haddock takes on all the cynicism. So Tintin gets to be pure-hearted, gets to believe that everything's going to work out. And Captain Haddock takes on the other role. The, oh, maybe this is not the best idea. And then the other character who's in every single one of them is Snowy. Snowy is as simple in design as Tintin and part of what makes Tintin feel whole. He's the animal sidekick that gives us something easy to care about. The most stressed I felt reading Tintin as a kid was whenever Snowy was in danger. And Snowy is in danger pretty frequently. 
And it's, you know, some people might think of that as cheap, like endangering the animal sidekick to like get our sympathies. But it's the easiest way to pull us in and easy isn't actually bad. That simplicity gives us an in, right? As a kid, it's so easy to imagine yourself as tinted because he's free of all these other traits. He has this distinct physical design, but he doesn't have a specific history. He's just a boy exploring the world. Wait, so does the dog talk? So, so Snowy, it's unclear whether Tintin can understand Snowy. It changes. Sometimes Snowy speaks in pictographs, like in symbols, to like communicate frustration or something like that. And then sometimes he'll, in, especially in the earlier stuff, he'll have like thought bubbles. That's wild. And so Snowy actually does make sounds, and it's spelled W-O-A-H. And I've been recently having a debate with a friend about what that sounds like, and she says it sounds like, wow, wow. I can't even do it. <laughs> Wow, 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 wow. That's not it. That's <laughs> definitely not it. I don't know what it is, but that's not it. So what do you say it sounds like? Whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that definitely sounds more like a talk. I think so too. <laughs> but, but I just want to say I'm very excited. This is the first comic that we've read that has a dog in it. You, you just, you're a single track mind, dude. It's can true. You, hey, can you, can you, you add, li- can you add another factor to your personality and not have it be soccer? You just said it's low hanging fruit, but easy is not bad. I love dogs. Oh, damn. damn, you got me. You got me. <laughs> I got him. So Tintin's just going around, looking at the world with Snowy, his dog, who we all love. And the world is maybe like one of the biggest things that Hergé is doing with Tintin. Hey, Tintin travels everywhere. In his first album, he goes to the Soviet Union. In the second, he goes to the Congo. He goes to America, Egypt, China, Scotland, the Deep Sea, the Middle East, Tibet, the Moon, and most frightening of all, Sydney. <laughs> But I don't think he actually, like, he doesn't, it, it looks like he's going to Sydney, but then the plane crashes, so he doesn't. Oh, no. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry to everyone. Who Spoilers. But that's not all either, because even though he goes to all those countries, Hergé also invents his own countries for the purposes of his stories. Analogues for real countries where he can play with their histories and have their politicians and just do things that he wants to do. So there's San Theodoros, which is specifically, like, a stand-in for Cuba or Cuba. Sildavia, based off of Montenegro. Borduria, Siltavia's neighbor and enemy. These two are like, there's some debate on what he's actually copying. Some people say it's Austria and Germany pre-World War II. Some people say it's the Balkans. It's just, it's Europe. And like I said, he doesn't even make it to Sydney. He crashes in Pulau Pulau Bomba, mm-hmm. which is an amalgamation of Indonesia, Borneo, and some Polynesian islands. So here's my question. Yeah, Has Herji actually been to all or even any of these countries? I don't actually know if Hergé has been to all of these countries. He's definitely not been to the ones he made up because they don't exist. <laughs> the reason I ask is I'm just curious how his portrayals of these countries have been received, whether they are sort of culturally accurate or are they criticisms of it. Boy, oh boy, Nat, you are teeing me up for a home run. Oh. Watch me whiff it. So the world is such a huge source of joy for me in reading Tintin to see all the places he could go to. You're vicariously traveling through his adventures, looking at these beautiful panels and places. But is it as beautiful as it seems? Dun, dun, dun. Hergé made Tintin in 1929. Hergé was born in 1907. He was a brilliant artist and an amazing storyteller, but he was also a product of the times. One of the places that's most clear is Tintin's second adventure, Tintin in the Congo, which is undoubtedly racist. 
Like, there's not even like an argument that it isn't. Capital R racist. Capital R racist. It peddles in stereotypes. The images of the Congolese, both physically and in terms of their character, are just terrible. It's full on blackface. They're not coherent. They're not clever. They're savages. It's impossible to be charitable about Hergé's image of the Congo because even in 1929, there was a rising understanding of what was acceptable and what was actually true about the Congo. And the worst part of it is that it really doesn't help that the Congo was a colony for the Belgians, which is Hergé's country. Mm. But colonized isn't even really the right term. It's estimated that half the Congolese population died under rule of Belgian King Leopold II with historians guessing maybe 10 million people. We actually don't know how many people died under King Leopold II, because obviously they weren't even keeping track. They were not even regarding these people as human, so they were not keeping count. What we do know is that it rivals the number of deaths in the Holocaust. Wow, shit. I don't want to get stuck on this, but you know, if you're listening, or Nat, if you're interested, a great book about this is King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hothschild. This is a real downer of episode, huh? Oh yeah, it's going. No, it's it, we're gonna we're gonna turn around. We're gonna turn around. Okay. So there was actually a lot of debate about whether Tintin the Congo could be sold. It can be pretty hard to find. I have a copy of it, so I could complete my collection. But it was given to me, and my mom was like, "Just know what you're looking at. Know that this is not accurate." So where does that place Tintin in this era, in this time? What do we do with Tintin? Right. We read him, knowing this history. We read him, knowing Hergé's past, and we hope that our morals are strong enough that reading a single comic isn't going to make us blatantly racist. That simplicity that makes Tintin so easy to read also reduces cultures, right? In Tintin in America, the Native American is the feathered headdress. The Chinese man is the Mandarin hat. The Mexican is a sombrero. It's a visual shortcut, and it would be easy to condemn Hergé when we think of it with respect to the Congo. But it's actually more complicated than that. Because he's not singular in his treatment of other people. Specifically, in The Blue Lotus which is the third Tintin story and what many people consider to be the first one, Tintin goes to China and saves a young boy named Chang. Chang, when awake, asks Tintin why this white devil has saved his life. And Tintin responds by saying, oh, you feel that way because of the Boxer Rebellion. And they talk about the warped stereotypes that the West has of China and China has of the West. Hergé in the Blue Lotus is aware that cultures are not monolithic, nor is it the worst of what we see across the seas. It's just unfortunate that his prejudices prevented him from extending that same nuanced treatment to the Congo. And so the design is simple. The world is a little bit more complex. And that takes us to Tintin in Tibet, which you're going to be reading in a few minutes. Tintin in Tibet is considered by many experts as much as one can be an expert in Tintin to be the best book Hergé wrote. It's filled with a deep well of emotion, possibly because of Hergé's emotional turmoil at the time. I won't tell you what that was because I don't want it to color your read. I'll tell you after, especially since I don't think it's really relevant. But what I will tell you is that Hergé was having these nightmares of vast fields of white. He went to a psychologist who told him that he was being haunted by purity and his inability to be pure. Wow. And if we think about it, that's what Tintin is. Tintin is pure. He is without flaws. He's just a good kid who wants to help people. And in this story, the person he wants to help is Chang, one of his best friends, the boy he saved in the Blue Lotus. What makes this read so complicated is that Chang is based off of Hergé's real friend, Zhang Chongren. They met because when Hergé announced his next book was going to be in China, someone like a president of a Chinese association went to Hergé and said, I think you really 
need to know a little bit more about China before you do this, because I don't want a repeat of the Congo yeah. or the Soviet Union, because those were the first two books. And and Hergé himself has tried to pull Tintin in the Soviet Union because of its prejudices as well. So this man introduces Hergé to Zhang Chongren, a sculptor at the school, and they would meet weekly for Zhang to tell Hergé about China, so Hergé could tell the story authentically. So an effort was made. So an effort was made, but it wasn't necessarily made by Hergé. It was made by someone else. But he didn't refuse it, right? And so they were talking about not just the European ideas of China, but the truth of China. And that, you know, carries directly into that conversation I was just telling you about when Tintin saves Chang from the river, right? And they talk about the caricatures they have of each other's cultures. And we can actually credit a lot of Tintin's anti-imperialism, which becomes a core tenet of the character throughout the stories, to Zhang Chongren, who told Hergé about Japanese colonialism in China. Before this, especially in Tintin in the Congo, Tintin was siding with the colonizer. After this point, Tintin becomes the man of the people. Tintin in Tibet is one of my favorite Tintin stories because it takes everything we love about the character, his pure mindset, his unsullied optimism, and puts it to the test, all to save this friend. It's a simple story about friendship, not just Tintin and Chang, but Hergé and Zhang Chongren. It's a reminder of the effect that Zhang had on Hergé and the humanity that would end up driving the entirety of the series. So now, Nat, I want you to pick up Tintin in Tibet. Get ready to read. And remember, just keep it simple. Tintin in Tibet. What a glorious holiday, eh, Snowy? The dog straight up talks in the second panel. Again, what are you saying? <laughs> he has all speech. Why is the captain hating on mountains, man? Grumpy guy. Billions of blue, blistering barnacles. <laughs> it's a letter from Chang. He was on the plane that crashed. No survivors. No, it isn't true. I know Chang is not dead. Not dead? I'm packing my bag and leaving for Nepal. That's a boy who knows what he wants. What is with all these people shouting Chang? <laughs> who sneezes? And the vocalization that comes out of their mouth is Chang. Okay, let me try. Ah, Chang! I'm not convinced. <laughs> oh, here's the classic. Whoa, 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 whoa. I love you, Snowy. He's so naively optimistic, huh, this Tintin? Such purity. Oh no! The captain climbed onto the sacred cow! Please, respect people's cultures. <coughs> Chang! See, not realistic at all. Billions of blistering barnacles in a thundering typhoon! That's great. These three panels of the captain walking, leading the charge, whistling, then falling behind, then falling behind. And then he drinks whiskey, of course. Grumpy guy, la, this captain had up. Oh no! Snowy's hallucinating. Oh, no, no, it's not. It's just angel and devil. Oh, hmm. This is confusing. The devil dog says, So what? Feels good, doesn't it? It warms the cockles of your heart, eh? What about some more? Look at all that whiskey dripping away. Hmm. Oh, no. The dog's getting dry. Hmm. The implications of this are... Oh, Snowy! 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 Great snakes! He'll be dashed to pieces on the rocks! Why is Tintin scolding Snowy? (sighs) 
Thank you, voice of reason, finally, Captain Haddock. It's crazy to go ahead without a guide, yes! Oh no, is Chang really dead? The Yeti! The entrance to the cave! <gasps> it's Chang! Oh, the Yeti just wanted a friend! <laughs> Poor guy! It's lonely! Aww... The last panel of the Yeti looking out... Lonely... He has no friends... The end. I'm back! I am back! Wow! That was fun! Welcome back from Tibet, Matt. Yeah, yeah, Did yeah. Did you enjoy your stay? This... This boy, Tintin, huh? This guy. He's a handful. This fella. He's a, he's a little... He's a little... A little bit annoying. Is that is that bad for me to say? You think he's annoying? You think he's annoying? I, I'm conflicted. Okay, I'm conflicted because obviously I understand like the target demographic. It's primarily written for children. I can see that if I was a simple-minded child... As opposed to a simple-minded adult. Correct, which I am now, but... I can imagine, you know, reading this story and just enjoying it for what it is. This teenage boy who never gives up and it's the meaning of true friendship and he pushes until the end. But you know, now as a jaded, grumpy, simple-minded adult, mm -hmm. I read it and I go, I can't believe he risked so many people's lives because of a dream he had. Well, you, you, know, you know who you are? You know who you are, Nat? Who? I'm the Grinch. You kept. Your Captain Haddock, <laughs> the Grinch, literally the characters in the book you just read. Why are you bringing in the Grinch? It's not even Christmas. What a ridiculous thing to say. You know who you are? Uh, the Joker. <laughs> but I mean, you kind of get where I'm coming from, right? Like, as an adult with some semblance of responsibility and like, you know, understanding of risk assessment, you look at those decisions he's made and you go like, man... It's frustrating. It's frustrating to say the least. Hey, Nat, Nat. I'm going to blow your mind. It's not real. <laughs> I know. I actually, I, you know, I should have put that in my notes. You, you know what I think it also is, Nat? I think, I mean, I'm also rereading it. I know Chang is there. I mean, I know Chang like, is alive. I know Tintin's right. I know Chang is alive from the beginning. Like, there's no I way. I don't think you did. I don't think you did. I did. You're a haddock through and through. I did. You're a haddock There's through no through. way they would have ended this story with Chang being dead. Like, that is a given, right? It's for children. Like, of course he's alive. Of course Tintin is going to succeed in this mission. But then, you know, there are moments where, like, he defies the advice of the Sherpas, of the porters, and he thinks he knows better than them, and he survives for days without a guide. And I'm like, in the harsh mountains of Nepal, you think you survive a day without a Sherpa? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, you know, I'm going to suspend my disbelief. And I will admit, you know, I mean, all that aside, it was a very fun read. Realism is the death of culture. That's my mic drop for you. I will not drop this mic because it's too expensive. I mean, there are connections with what I'm saying to why there was so much controversy over the depictions of some of these quote-unquote foreign cultures, right? Right. Like, right. Yes, we acknowledge that it is fictional, that it's not necessarily a realistic depiction, but... To a certain extent in this story, I think part of appreciating the culture of, you know, the Nepalese and like the Sherpas is also acknowledging like the incredibly dangerous conditions that they work in and they live in and kind of like paying respect to that. I don't know. I don't know if I'm being too harsh, but I feel like the nonchalance with which they go like, oh, we don't need you and we can just go climb this mountain and we survive. And then all the Sherpas are like, oh my God, you guys are incredible to me, reads slightly disrespectful because, you know, their culture is so tied to nature, right? And respecting the magnitude and the grandeur 
and the danger of that environment. Yeah. No, I mean, 100%. I mean, like I said, right, it is, you know, Herge was getting better, but was he ever, like, fully respecting slash acknowledging different cultures as, as equal? He's getting there. So you can take a shot every time Captain Haddock makes a major taboo. Yeah. Like, he sits on the sacred cow, he insists on going to the right of the stupa, and then crashes. But in all of those instances, he gets punished. So in a way, Hergé is showing respect in his way. But it's, you know, you can't read Tintin for its political correctness. No, of course, yes. If anything, it's a cultural artifact of 1958 Belgium. Yeah, of their perception of the world. Yes. So you're taking all that into account. Like I said, it's a very well-written story. While, of course, I knew that Chang would eventually be alive, the journey in which they brought you, you know, the bringing you to the point where you almost suspect that he might not be, I think that was, was really well executed. There's a wonderful push and pull in yeah. this book. There was the push and pull of like, oh, are they going to keep going? Are they not? Is Captain Haddock going to follow? Is he not? And every time Captain Haddock comes back, you're like, that's nice. That's real sweet. I love the one when um, one of the times he quits and Tintin moves on and this time it seems like he's really done. Yeah. And then he shows up on a horse and Tintin's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, you know, you forgot your uh, camera. And Tintin's like, oh, thank you so much. Since I'm here, I might as well, you know, follow you. I might as well, you know, (laughs) I might as well. And so that's something I love about the characters that Hergé makes as well. Because like Captain Haddock is this super grumpy dude. Damn grumpy. Um, He's a grumpy guy. But the whole thing is like a veneer, right? I mean, there's instantly in that, like in the first few pages, there's that bit when he goes on the rant and he's like, there's no way, there's no way I will go to you to Kathmandu. No siree. And two days later, the next Literally (laughs) the next panel is them arriving in New Delhi. It's just a funny, it's like a... It's, it's, and, and that happens like six times within this chapter. So his relationship with album. Tintin is like, they're friends, right? But Tintin also has no they're parents. Buds. They're buds. He's not, he's not like a figure of authority for Tintin at all. So something I neglected to mention in my yant was that Hergé was writing in French. Yeah, I was going to ask about the language of writing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all written in French and Tintin is one of the most translated comic books of all time. You know, I think it's like 70 different languages... I think I've got Tintin and the Blue Lotus in Chinese when I was trying to like improve my Mandarin. Wow. And so the thundering typhoons, blistering barnacles, that's the work of the translators. Yeah, because there's no way that alliteration would have worked in French. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious then, what were the, do you know what the French equivalents are? For you know, those, probably like... something super racially charged. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's translated by Leslie Lonsdale Cooper and Michael Turner. I just want to acknowledge the translators themselves. You know, and, and there's an act of creation of the translation too, right? Because that bit you were reading where Captain Haddock is chasing after the Yeti yeah. and he's just throwing out just these nonsense Wild words. words. Yeah, I really like the language of Captain Haddock. I think he's such a funny character. And in this one, he's really like, he, he gets beat so many times. Like in every other page, he's falling down. <laughs> but he's the most likable character in my opinion. Right? For all those reasons that you said, because he presents this voice of reason that resonates with the grumpy, responsible right. adult in me. Yeah. And then, but then at the same time, he has this soft spot for Tintin that you can appreciate. Like at the end of the day, beneath that hard veneer is this man who cares for this friend, for this boy, right? So to yeah. me, he is the most likable character. Tintin, the, the, the naivete irks me a little bit. That actually brings me to a great page when Captain Haddock falls off the cliffside. And he's only connected to Tintin by a rope. By a rope, yeah. And he's insisting that Tintin cut the rope. And yeah. it's like such a moment when it all comes into focus of who Captain Haddock really is. Mm. Right? He, he's all grumpy, but he's 
willing to do anything for Tintin. And visually, the stakes are communicated in a very exciting way, where when he's hanging from the rope, it's maybe the longest panel. It's like a very narrow panel. It's very long. And so you get the sense of how far he's falling mm, and how far mm. he will fall. Whereas most of the panels, if we talk about the paneling in Tintin, right, it's mostly square. It's pretty pretty small squares, evenly shaped. There was the one that I highlighted that I really loved, the, the three like horizontal panels where like Haddock starts at the front and then he falls behind. Oh yeah, front. a lot of great visual gags. That was great. Yeah, I really I really loved how they used that. So in that yeah, so in that panel, Hege is giving us a sense of timing because we're seeing the characters walking together and Captain Haddock's in the lead. And then in each subsequent panel, he falls behind further and further as the sun also sets in the background. Mm. I, uh, I will say this is, I mean, going back to that particular scene where Haddock is hanging by a rope. This is not so much a criticism as it is just an observation, but if this album was turned into like a movie, has it been turned into any sort of cinematic or TV? So great question. Okay, okay before you answer, great before question. you answer, what I was going to yeah, say yeah, is yeah. that if it was, you can imagine this being like a super dramatic moment, right? Like his life is at risk and, you know, it's like you really lean into the tension and the drama of the moment. I feel like that isn't really communicated in the way that this comic is written. And I think that could possibly be just, you know, a product of how comics were done at the time. They weren't so creative with the panels. Like, I could imagine having read things like Saga and The Sandman, right? I could imagine, you know, if this moment was captured in that style, you'd have like a full page panel or a full page spread, right. you know, where it's really right. like you really hone into the drama of the moment of, of Haddock, you know, a close up of the hand slipping on the rope. Right. Yeah. By and large, Hergé is pretty natural with his paneling. Hmm. He doesn't make strong stylistic choices with his paneling. Right. You know, he does excellent compositions and the images are fantastic, but he doesn't usually do these like medium breaking moments when you're like whoa that's the craft on display yeah but then there's also a lot of like really subtle craft one of the times when captain had a quits he's walking away from tintin and so he's walking left that's such a simple visual cue because we read from like left to right right because captain haddock is walking left we know he's going away he's going back home and then Tintin kind of implies he's a coward after <laughs> plying him with alcohol which is you know Tintin maybe don't do that kind of <laughs> not nice and then Captain Hedda shouts at Tintin and then he walks right yeah which means now he's going forward and so that's just a super simple choice mm. right it's such an elegant way of telling us are they going forwards or backwards it's the elegance and simplicity oh my goodness wow it's almost like that's the tagline for this episode and I will say like I think in general, you know, compared to some of the other stuff that we've read in The Sandman last week, we saw panels that covered speech bubbles, you know, to imply yeah. like yeah. background chatter or whatever, you know. And I think we're not seeing any of that here. Yeah. But then what shines H through... It's not driven by those formal... Yeah, things. what shines through, I guess, is then the simplicity of the narrative and the characters. And one of the things about that is that Hergé then gets to pack a ton of stuff into a page. Some of these pages, I don't know if you noticed, if you're counting, have like 20 panels. Yeah, it's dense. It's dense. Which is nuts. It's, it's something that you're like, wow, you can't do that really in a lot of modern serialized comics because it's just impossible to look at. But you look at Hergé's 20 panel pages and you're like, oh, this is so simple. This makes so much sense. I totally get it. Yeah, because I think even like in the art style, he doesn't pack the background with details. Everything is very simply colored. It's just like line art and block coloring. Like there's no shading. Right. Things that would clutter the visual aren't there. 
So going back to this question of adaptations. So a big part of my Tintin experiences growing up was my mom would take me to like these photo shoots she would have to do for the cookbooks she would edit. And she would bring the VCDs of Tintin's TV show. VCDs. And that was one of my favorite cartoons because it just does what the comics do. It doesn't try to make any crazy choices. It has a great theme song. Please, please sing it. Please sing it. I really can't remember it right now. Hold on. You know, I want to say it's... But that's actually the X-Men 92 theme song. You know, um, I just found it. It's way too orchestral. So unless I had like four more vocal cords, I can't do it. But it starts with like... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you, y'all can figure out the rest. What instrument was that? Triangle, drums, maracas, violin, dog. You decide. Whoa, whoa. I was going to... I um. Wow. What language was the cartoon in? French? English? It was in English. I was watching it in English. Maybe it was originally in French. There was also a radio show for Tintin. And Steven Spielberg did a movie. What? Was it live action? It was not live action. It's when that technology for like rendering CGI semi-realistically was still coming in. Like a Polar Express. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. But I do think it's a great, great movie. There's this wonderful, wonderful 10-minute sequence, which is just a chase scene. And it understands what makes Tintin so much fun to read. What's the movie called? It was called The Adventures of Tintin. And it was an amalgamation of two different stories, I think. Mm. And now here's the thing about Tintin in Tibet. Because... Right, Tintin's been adapted into a lot of different ways, and one of those was for the stage. What? And so, actually, in 2007, my sister and I watched a West End production of Tintin in Tibet. That's wild. Yeah. That's cool, though. I wasn't aware that it has been adapted for so many mediums. I mean, obviously, I was semi-aware of how hugely successful Tintin is as a franchise, but yeah, that's news to me, the, the movie and the stage. Has there been Tintin on Ice? There has not been Tintin that's on the fi- Ice. That's I actually, the final Infinity Stone. <laughs> that's the final frontier for Tintin. Tintin on Ice. And that would naturally be Tintin in Tibet. Yeah, that would yeah. make the most sense. Perfect. Imagine, imagine that Yeti going... <laughs> I actually remember watching the, the TV version of the Tintin in Tibet is fantastic. And it's really haunting. That last panel where the Yeti is looking at them leaving and he's about to be alone. Yeah, let's talk about that. Man, he just wanted a friend. Isn't that sad? Yeah, he's, and that's, that's what he's just like the Sandman. <laughs> Audio medium, so people can't see that I just made an extremely confused face. That whole thing like, last no week about how like means. he did the hundred every oh, every century okay, thing okay. because he, okay, sure. you know, you're, right, like, you're right, you're lonely, right. You want a friend, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and it, and it's that's why like I think Tintin in Tibet is one of the best Tintin stories because it's like a multi-layered examination of friendship. Yeah, because there's Tintin and Chang, there's Tintin and Captain Haddock. And then there's actually Chang and, and the Yeti. Yeah. Right? And I mean, all of those are just people doing things for their friends. Kind of weird Stockholm Syndrome vibes a little bit. You're, you're projecting, my friend. <laughs> the Yeti saved him. The Yeti saved Chang. The Yeti's so sweet. So this last panel is the Yeti looking at the entourage leave. Forlornly. Um, from behind the rocks. Forlornly. And this is one of the only formal changes in the whole book. With the circle panel. Right? The oval panel. It's an oval panel. It's very cinematic. It's very evocative. And it's, I just love that panel so much. But tell me uh, the truth, Yan. How much of your love for this panel and the Yeti is linked to your love for King Kong? 
See, you know, you got a great point there, and that's the, that, that's there's a there's a great Tintin story with a giant gorilla. You can't deny Ooh. it. You can't deny that's it. I, I this one. It. That, and that and isn't this one. I know, I know. There's but another giant monkey in Tintin. I looked oh. at that last panel and I said, "No wonder Yen picked this one." <laughs> Kong just wants a friend, man. Kong it's just true. wants a friend. It's true. And thankfully, you know, huge personal news for me. They've just announced it's Godzilla and Kong. I know. So I saw your tweet. Kong's about to have a great That nobody friend. liked because nobody cared. But I think I liked it. I liked it. Yeah, you did like it. I do tweet a lot about Godzilla and Kong. And none of those do well at all. Nobody <laughs> likes to hear me talk about it. But I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for me. So, you know, we were talking about translation. And there is a hilarious instance of... Tintin and Tibet's translation. And once again, you know, if you're a member of the CCP, just plug your ears. Don't listen to this part. Like I said, I have Tintin and the Blue Lotus in Mandarin. One of the translations for Tintin in Tibet, the title was Tintin in Chinese Tibet. Oh, oh no. And it's so funny because they were really like, no, we can't, we can't let this slide. We can't oh, no. let this slide. Oh no. It'd be really funny if you go through and it's like, oh, it's, look over there. It's the Chinese Yeti. <laughs> Just sort of uh, modify every Tibetan word with Chinese. Exactly, exactly. That there's something about Tintin and the internationalism of it that there's so many weird stories yeah. like this. There's a great article in the Atlantic by Krishna Dev Kalamur talking about growing up with Tintin and loving it, and then revisiting it and realizing, oh, there's quite a lot of problems. Yeah, quite a lot of problems. So earlier I teased to you, you know, do you want to know the psychological drama? Yes, yes, Hergé? I do, yes. So I really didn't want to tell you this before you read it because I think it's it's a weird story because basically Hergé, at this moment, 1958, he's in his 50s. So I mentioned it was about purity, right? Mm. Um, it's because he was with his wife, but falling out of love with her and falling in love with a colleague who was 30. And he was trying to actually have it both ways. He was trying to see if they could if he could stay married and also just have a long affair with this woman. This man, and, greedy. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know, I know. And it's and that's part of why he was having these nightmares about purity because he was a Boy Scout, he was raised Catholic, so he had these all these ideas of what he should be um, and was just finding it impossible to do that in reality, which I think actually lends some layers to this story about Tintin's purity. Mm. Right, Tintin is the pure version of himself that he can't quite achieve. Right. Interesting. He will never be, nobody can ever be as good as Tintin. And so he projects that morality into his character. Almost to a fault, right? Which is like... Almost to a fault, maybe. I mean, for me, the obstinate sort of naivete yeah. never takes no for an answer because for the purity of his friendship. Right. right. So there's a lot of different layers going on in Tintin in Tibet. Again, why I love it so much. Right, because there's additional, you know, now psychological layers. So if you go back and read it now, and so there's some people who try to place, I think, pretty neat metaphors on it, like oh, Chang is his wife, or the woman he's having an affair with, or things like that. Eh, I, just, I don't like I don't that. I don't think it really maps. I don't like that. I don't that. think it maps at all. Yeah. I do think there is something still aspirational about the story and in purity and in trying to be someone who can save the day, just by willing it. You know what I will say, regardless of their own role in that. I think he is the yeti. I think that last panel... You think he's the Yeti? I think that's him. You know, that's actually another... That's another one of the theories is that it's him watching his soon-to-be ex-wife leave. That one I can buy. <laughs> that, you know, we'll take that. I want to address another element that we've not talked about yet that I was um, in two minds about. Yeah. 
the devil and angel talk. Snowy's moral conscience. Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? This, I didn't this, like that, lah. I didn't like it. <laughs> it's 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 a bit weird. It's a bit weird, and it's not a recurring thing either. I think it's it just in this. Maybe some, but it's not. It's not like every time Snowy has to make a decision, an angel and devil appear. It's it's just yeah, this. Yeah, it, it was a bit far from me. I was like, what? You just love Snowy too much, and you just don't want him to have a devil. That's all. And I forgot actually how verbose Snowy is in this one. Normally he's yeah, not this verbose. Literally the second panel. He literally goes the second panel speech. is him giving a hundred word treatise on how much his feet hurt. A soliloquy. <laughs> but Tintin can't understand him still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously I enjoyed the character of the dog. I get what you mean when you know that moment when Snowy falls into the river. It tugs at your emotions unless you're like a monster who doesn't like dogs. So for the viewer, he was pointing at me when he said that. I don't know. It felt a little, <laughs> it felt a little rude. This is a veneer that Yen puts up. You know, prior to this recording, he just told me he dog-sitted his friend's dog. So, you know, you can be yourself, Yen. You can be vulnerable it's in front of the audience. It's a total lie. I don't know what a dog looks like. And then, But then there's also the moment where he takes the message... Well, he attempts to and then gets distracted by a bone. Yeah. I guess it's cute, but it's like, again, the big grumpy cynic in me is like, ah, why they got to make the dog save the day? It's not realistic. Man, you're boring as hell. (laughs) (laughs) I have to be honest. I have to be honest when I share my thoughts. It doesn't mean I don't like it. It doesn't mean I don't appreciate it. It's just I have these... You watch an Inside Out and you're like, ugh, why do the emotions speak? That's, That's not how it works. They're neurons. They're synapses. It's a little bit of like Deus Ex Machina, right? A little bit of like, yeah, of course, the dog saves the day. You only say that because you think Snowy is God. (laughs) So, Nat, now we're coming near the end and I've got to ask you my two questions. The big two questions. The big two questions. Do you see the value? Yeah. To me, the value is with entertainment. Right, the simplicity of a fun, riveting story. I can totally see myself enjoying this very much as a kid and maybe even now. And that leads to my second question. Would you keep reading? I think I would. I mean, as Yen was deciding which of the albums to get me to read, he decided to send me a lot of them. So I have a whole tote bag full of Tintin books now. And I, you know, I, I can see myself picking one up once in a while just when I want to de-stress a little reading it through. Yeah, I think my answer to that is a definitive yes. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Is that the first strong yes I've given? No, I think I, I said no, yes you to gave Saga. A strong, you gave a strong yes for Saga. But you know, my caveat to that is, I mean, again, this is not a criticism. This was obviously written for a younger demographic, right? Right. So this kind of plays into the obviously inaccurate mindset that comics are for children, right? right. And to a certain extent, that also feeds into why... I feel it's more accessible. I can just jump into it because it feels like I'm reading something that's for a younger age group and I kind of switch off my mind and just enjoy, which is not the type of comic that I've had difficulty accessing or had resistance towards, right? It is the more convoluted, complex stuff that is daunting to me, right? Right. So, you know, Nat, we're trying to pick them on the fly. What do you think? What are you in the mood for next week? Hmm. I don't know. What are the options? What are the options? I'm not going to give you the (laughs) options. I don't have a menu. You know, since this week was lighter, yeah, elegance and simplicity, yeah, let's swing the pendulum Ooh. to the other end of the spectrum. Let's get complicated. Let's go for something a little weighty. Oh, let's go for some heavy stuff. Okay, I'm gonna ruin you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna pick some nasty stuff. If you like to see me ruined by some nasty stuff, tune in next week. Thanks everyone for listening to Comic Sense. 
and we'll see you on the next page. See ya. Thanks for listening to Comic Sense. This is an Andas Productions show hosted by Mao Yente and Nathaniel Ma and produced by Roshan Singh Sambi. Our cover art is by Isabel Fang and marketing by Siobhan Lek. Follow us on social media at the links in the description and stay tuned for weekly releases of our 8-episode first season.